My name is Joe Vollert, and welcome to Who Needs School, a podcast which explores the future of education through conversations with educators, innovators, business leaders, and citizens about something we all do, school. Our guest today is educator and visionary Father Eddie Reist, a Jesuit priest who has been a very successful high school principal and president for most of his 50 years in secondary education, and is now in his fifth year as president of St. Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco, where his vision is not only to provide access to promising San Francisco youth who otherwise might not be able to attend private school, but also to renovate an aging campus into a learning complex where teachers can use technology to design learning experiences. Well, welcome, Father Reese. Thank you for joining our uh, podcast, Who Needs School? I thought we might get started by asking you to take us through what school was like for you. What was that educational journey? Oh, well, okay. So I think my first few years of school, I'm not sure I knew why I was there or what I was doing. Kindergarten, I think I went for the naps. The first grade, second grade, and third grade, I was in a Catholic school. I think the sisters were in their teens who taught us. And we had, we'd have 60 kids in a class. And it, I think I kind of liked it. I don't know. And then at the end of third grade, the sister told me I was going to re- repeat third grade. Well, <laughs> what I realized years later is that's, that was probably the reason my parents took me to meet some other nun who interviewed me, and I think I took tests and things like that. I, th- I think today I would have certainly ADD or something like that. And and I think I have a mild case of dyslexia, probably, but I certainly couldn't spell. And that was a big thing. So anyway, I repeated third grade. And all of a sudden, I don't think school was quite as much fun, although I was bigger than everybody else. So I got to play football. I made a, a very serious, well thought out decision in my eighth grade to go to a Loyola High School in Los Angeles in spite of the fact that my mother taught at the local public school, was just as happy for me to go there. My my father had gone to Loyola High, but never put any pressure on me at all to go. But the well-thought-out decision was based on the fact that my girlfriend's brother was there. So that's why I wanted to go to Loyola High. Well, of course, I was turned down at Loyola High School because the only entrance test they really corrected, I found out later, was the spelling test. And if I got two words right out of 100, that would have been a miracle. Yeah, but then sure. my father, who'd gone there, called somebody, and somebody else called somebody. Anyway, I got in which incidentally is why I'm never allowed to be on the admissions committee at any of the schools I've been at, because <laughs> the kids always get in, especially the ones that can't spell. Uh, but but I think the point of that is the school was okay, but it wasn't something I was particularly excited about. High school was okay. I, I did much better academically in high school. I liked Loyola, especially liked and got to know the young Jesuits there and was impressed by them, as I guess every Catholic kid in those days, every boy anyway, thought about becoming a priest. I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, 
I'm going to be like those guys. So I joined the Jesuits and probably never looked back. But even in the Jesuits, there's lots of things you can do as a Jesuit. So teaching in a high school was never, it wasn't something I avoided by any means, but it was something that I wasn't excited that I had to do. And I, in fact, for a brief time, I was scheduled to go on and teach philosophy at one of our universities. There were That was unusual at the time, but there was a couple of, of the young guys that were doing that. At the last minute, they got me and my brother mixed up. My brother was going to go to Loyola High School to teach as what we call scholastics. I was going to go to SI. At the last minute, that got switched. My brother went to SI and has never wanted to teach in high school again. <laughs> I went to I went to Loyola High School where I had had gone. Spent three years, two years in the same classroom I had spent my sophomore year and absolutely fell in love with it. Yeah. I remember walking out of the and I taught English, which of course I couldn't, I wasn't very good at. And I taught modern European history, of which I knew nothing, but just absolutely loved both of those. I loved teaching. The head of the school bumped into me and said, Hey, any of the new guys know anything about football? And I laughed. I said, Are you kidding? I'm the only one that even played when, I, and that was only when I was a freshman. And he said, well, good, you're the freshman football coach. And so I I was, luckily enough, I was an assistant freshman football coach for the next three years. I, again, never had as much fun in my life as doing that. And so I was, I was bit by the bug, loved teaching high school kids, that impact, and, and been doing it for the last that, that was 50 years, sure. Yeah. So when you were what do you in, in high school, I, I have to imagine that it was a, you know, you were as a chalk and talk type thing, right? The, the teacher was the commander and you just absorbed the information. But it, it, was there anything, and I, I, I'm assuming that's the case and you can comment on that, but what really impacted you or formed you when you were in high school? Like, was it a class or an experience? When I was in high school or when yeah. I was in Oh, when you were uh, in high school? As a student? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, there were some things I was very good at. Math I was good at. And anything that required kind of discussion and that sort of thing. And even in those days, yeah, it was chalk and talk. But the talk wasn't just the from the teachers. The, the Jesuits in those days encouraged us to express our opinions. And I think they kind of liked even when we disagreed, if it was, you know, you had to be polite and you had to think about what you were saying. So I, I remember kind of, I guess it would probably be more the Socratic method, I guess mm -hmm. is probably how it would have been described in those days. So that was influenced. I think I was just influenced by... I don't know, the, the attitude toward whatever we were talking about. And then the outside the classroom, we were almost, it was almost all Jesuit teachers. So just getting that opportunity to talk and get to know the teachers. Although I coached football, I only played, I think, about 10 minutes, and that was enough for me. And I joined the choir and loved singing and was in the plays the the plays were all musicals, so I was in those, which again gave me an opportunity to see teachers on a, in a different in a different 
uh, way as friends in a, in a, in a, you know, how an older person can be your friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a mentor. So, and, and kind of connecting those two, and this is really one of the questions I want to ask you is because Jesuits have been known for 450 plus years of being renowned educators and the world has clearly changed over 450 years. And yet Jesuits and Jesuit schools remain, you know, kind of a highly regarded as uh, great educators. What, what, like, what do you think the kernel is? What's the secret sauce to Jesuit education? Do you think? Yeah. I, you know, they, they, we use the, the term curl person as, you know, care for the person. And, and yeah, it meant, you know, caring for people who liking that. But I think it was respecting. And I've come to see this more in retrospect, in, uh, respecting the individual person and encouraging us as high school students to think for ourselves. Now, the, the pedagogy, the skills of these guys, some of these, these were young guys that had just come out of studies themselves. They didn't have any education classes. They didn't know any of the jargon or even any of the theory behind teaching, but they, they, they were good at making us think for ourselves, which automatically changed the focus more of how they taught. So, so to do that, you have to find out what the kid is thinking. So encourage more dialogue and that sort of thing in the classroom without really knowing that they were promoting group work or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, and so flashing forward to the 2020s, how do you think that manifests itself today? Like what's your, where do you think we're heading with that? And well, and- I, th- I, yeah, yeah. I think our schools today are for one of a better description or better word are far more professional in the sense that teachers actually, the, the teachers that are teaching in Jesuit schools today are, are much more aware of pedagogy and much more aware of the different ways students learn and respect the different ways teachers can can teach and pre- mm-hmm. present the material. Having said all that, I think the basic loving their kids, loving their students is really what matters and trying to figure out what what works best. But my, my first month or so here at St. Ignatius, I was walking around and I just bumped into some kid sitting out on one of our terraces. And I said to him, I got talking to him about school. And I said, well, how do you like the teachers here? And he said, well, I like the teachers. And somehow we got off on an example of one particular teacher that he was doing a uh, work pro- project for and didn't do very well on it. The teacher sought him out and said, hey, I think you can do better on this. Now, what were you thinking? Well, anyway, he, what he described is this teacher coming up with a different way for him to do the same material and took time and he, he did so much better. And, and he, he was amazed that this teacher did that. Well, that's pretty consistent. And with Jesuit education, we have groups of kids we're interested in, we try to teach, but each one of them, it's, I always think of it as the parable of the good shepherd, go and find in that one, that one lamb that wandered off and f- figuring out why he or she wandered off. And that's, and that, that you know, that kid, that kid will remember that, you know, that's, that stays with you. That's the kind of thing oh, that, that, you know, you yeah. forget the Pythagorean theorem, but 
fact that a teacher believed in you and, and took the, enough time to push you stays with you. Oh, I, yeah, I can still remember a couple of teachers, just conversations that I had as a, you know, 16, 17 year old, 15 year old. And, and one of the, one of the real blessings of being a teacher, it doesn't happen a whole lot, but every time you do run into a student that's years later that reminds you, I don't remember, but will remind me of some conversation I had, something I said that made a big impact. Yeah, that's yeah. the rewards. Or didn't we don't make out. a lot of money teaching, but that's, that's the reward of being a teacher. You're, you've got a great track record with really encouraging and pushing the use of technology in, in education. And when you were president at Brophy College Prep in Phoenix, you were one of the very first schools to, to use uh, laptops in the classroom and had a, I know you had a great freshman class where the students would really get introduced to circuitry and coding and working together uh, and using technology in their and their experience. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because, you know, everybody loves to jump on technology and education, but it's a lot easier said than done. And I know you've thought a lot about it and ex have experienced it. Where, where do you see us heading with that? Well, when I, uh, yeah, when I first uh, got to Bellarmine High School, the, the, the office they moved me into didn't have much in it, but somebody had left a computer in there that I started playing with. And then I also had a terminal that connected us with the county office of education where we did our scheduling. And I just started playing with the thing and got hooked and trying to make it do stuff that I couldn't make it do. So, so the first thing was I just got interested and then started sort of thinking about, you know, what, what these computers could do. And in the early days, it was word processing and some kind of data stuff, uh, files, FileMaker Pro, those kinds, which is playing somehow figuring how this could certainly be, uh, at, you know, as a non-speller, spell check was a miracle. So things like that. And then we, at the first time I tried it was at Bellarmine. We were able to get, it was when the laptop first came out. I think it was a Tandy. was able to get a, two classrooms full of Tandy laptops and got a couple of teachers just to volunteer to, and this was before internet or anything like that, just to volunteer to see how they could use these things to change education. Well, by the time I got to Phoenix in the late 90s, of course, a lot more had changed. There were actual educational software products that could be, and it just made sense to me that, that there were things that the computer could do and that freed up teachers to do the things that only teachers could do. And then as the internet got stronger and group work and all that, it just seemed to me uh, a no-brainer that we should introduce it into the curriculum. And I was fortunate enough to find some teachers that wanted to try it. So the first couple of years in Phoenix when we went where the whole school was using computers, the mantra, my mantra to the teachers was the role that would be reversed. More often than not, they would ask the kids to show them how to do something <laughs> with the computer. And that was true. And that created a, a different kind of learning environment. But see, that's how I got it. And the, the more I have seen people use technology, it's, 
it, it, what it really does ultimately is bring people together and to do things collectively that they, they can't do by themselves, and then to free up both teachers and students to do those things they can only do as teachers and students. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. It's that that, that personal connection is still important as you, as you teach a kid, but technology can, can in, in really enhance that experience. could certainly save a teacher some clerical time and grading and all that kind of stuff and really give you a chance to focus on, on how you teach the, the students. I, I, the, another thing on a personal way, which I could also see with students, is, you know, I spent uh, three years in Sydney, Australia at a school there, and I still keep pretty good contact with friends in Australia that I know I simply would not have done without technology. Mm-hmm. It, it had been one or two letters a year, mm-hmm. maybe a phone call, something like that, where with everything from internet contact, Instagram, that sort of thing, I'm in contact with friends for years now. Yeah. Now, we, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I, I can't let you go without asking you about another area that you, you know, really have led in, been a visionary in at both Brophy College Prep in Phoenix and at St. Ignatius in San Francisco. And that's about the middle school academies that you started. Can you can you just talk about kind of why you did that and, and the impact it's had on those communities? Yeah, almost all the schools I've been at, Loyola High, Bellarmine in San Jose, early days at Brophy, brief time I spent at Jesuit High School, we've all had outreach programs to younger kids to encourage them to come to the high school. And these were kids from challenging backgrounds, generally low income, maybe underserving schools, that sort of thing. And in all those schools, the struggle was how to really prepare those kids so they could take full advantage of high schools. And it was just sort of something we always, always talked about how could we do, and we'd bring in tutoring programs where kids might take two classes of English or something, we'll postpone modern language just to get, catch up to speed. They were just, and then we had a, a facility at Phoenix that was really underutilized, older classroom building. So I thought, well, why not just get these kids and have them start three years early, which is what we did with the academy model. And then it, the more it developed, the stronger I felt that a couple of things. The kids, they had to come from low income. So this was something that we were going we were gonna to help them financially do it. There, there's a full, full financial aid. Then the other thing is that I really felt, and, and it had just been reinforced more and more, is the kids... The, the junior high kids had to be on the high school campus so they could live and breathe and walk around with and see what they were going to be on the campus. And, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but now the people a lot smarter than I am talk about sort of the hidden curriculum, the, the ability to adapt to an environment that's different. Well, they were doing all that in a gentler, easier way as sixth graders. So when they came as, and this has happened when they they become ninth graders, they own the school. They're already up, and plus the fact that they're 
academic preparation is is so uh, so much better. The other thing that would be was equally important in this program was that there be some adult support at home so that we could partner a couple of times that that adult supports grandma or somebody but it's and and it just I think it it's it's the most it's very efficient. There are other ways other models that do similar things but I I really believe in this model of bringing the, the younger uh, students on as early or, or as early as possible, the sixth grade seemed to be a good good way to do it. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah. In, in the big scheme of things, it's still kind of, you know, those are young programs, but you've seen some success already. I know down at, in, in Brophy, some of those kids are in college now, right? Yeah. In Brophy, the first class are in juniors in college. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they when they graduated from high school, every one of them got into university. One had elected to go into the military and was going to, I think it was the Navy, it was going to go in the Navy. And then there was some physical disqualification. So he, he went on to, to university too. And they're all, they're all doing, doing well. And there are challenges. Not, not every kid that starts the program is able to finish it. But, but an, uh, opportunity, an awful right? good, yeah. good number too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Father Reese, thank you so much for your time. Continued good work at uh, San Ignatius with your endeavors, and we'll get you back on and, uh, and keep right. the conversation going. Thank you. I love it. Thank. And that's it for this episode of Who Needs School. I'd love to hear from you, so please reach out to me at joevollert at gmail that's J-O-E-V as in Victor, O-L-L-E-R-T at gmail.com. Love to hear any questions or thoughts you might have, and maybe you want to be a guest. Thank you.